Father, we are deeply grateful and we ask that you would continue to enable us to be grateful. Give us the grace to be thankful for the gift that you have given to us in your son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus, may we always strive with the grace that God gives to be like you, to become you in this world. In the love that you have shown for us and the obedience that you have shown to the Father's will, for all this, we are so grateful that you have made us, through your incarnation, the sons and daughters of God. And we lift these prayers up to you, our God, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> all, those, all those carols get someone a little thirsty. Ah. So during Christmas, we celebrate, if, if this is a surprise, I hope it's not, we celebrate the incarnation of God in the baby Jesus. Jesus who came born of the virgin, born under the law, as was read to us from our reading in Galatians. That is, that God took on human flesh in Jesus and dwelt among us. Now God comes to be with us because God made us to be with himself. And hunger, this might seem a bit odd at first, but hunger, that normal feeling that we get when we haven't had food in a while, or metaphorically for other things, a metaphor for our desires, hunger, maybe more than any other aspect of our lives, communicates the reality that God made us for himself, for one another, and for creation. Our hunger for food is a hunger for God's good creation. And this hunger for God's good creation indicates it points to our deeper hunger for God himself, for the creator, the one who satisfies all our hungers. So it's not surprising then in the Eucharist, the chief act of Christian worship that we come to every Sunday, that God continually and graciously gives us the gift of his son through the signs of bread and wine, food. To nourish us, to nourish our bodies, our minds, our souls, our whole persons. I don't know if the love languages book is a good one or not, but uh, if God has a love language, it's food, right? He communicates his love to us by giving us something to eat. He gives us his son as the food, the bread of heaven to sustain our whole persons. He gives us a wonderful, bountiful creation full of good things to eat, and I hope you've enjoyed some of those the last few days, and I hope you continue to do so for the rest of the Christmas season. From the very beginning, God gave the first human couple his good creation as one all-encompassing banquet, and God expressed his love for and presence to humanity through this gift of his creation as food. And God said, Behold, I give you every plant-yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree yielding its fruit with seed in it, you shall have them for food. God's love from the very beginning is incarnational, meaning that it is embodied in the stuff of creation. It is an enfleshed love. And during Christmas, we celebrate the ultimate incarnational act of God's love for humanity and for creation. We celebrate the birth of Jesus, who is God incarnate. God, the God who loves us, 
comes to us in flesh. He comes to us as a baby born of a woman, the Virgin Mary, born under the law. He comes to us in our flesh, in our nature. And our gospel lesson proclaims without equivocation that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only begotten Son of God. And so we may ask ourselves this Christmas season, why did Jesus, the Son of God, take on our human flesh, our human nature? Our lesson from Galatians gives us the answer. Paul says, in the same way, we also were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son. Aren't you glad that God sends forth his Son? He sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive what? Adoption as sons and daughters of the King, of the Creator. You see, God the Son, Jesus, took on our human flesh. That is, He was united to our human flesh. He was united to our human flesh in order to unite us in our broken flesh, redeemed now through Him to God. God had to descend to do only what He could do to do what we were incapable of doing in ourselves, restoring the relationship with God that was broken in the fall. Leo the Great expressed it in this way more than 16 centuries ago. Christ became the Son of Man so that we could become children of God. Had he not so lowered himself as to come down to us, none of us could ever have gone to him by any merits of our own. And so in our lesson from Galatians, we see that through Jesus' incarnation, God redeems us from slavery and adopts us as sons and daughters. And that is good news. I can't help but think that's the good news of great joy that the angel was talking about that evening so long ago when he announced the birth of the Christ child. You are no longer a slave. You are no longer a slave. Can you say that with me? Say, I am no longer a slave. I am no longer a slave. That's a beautiful gospel reality. In our reading from Galatians, Paul addresses the enslaved nature of all humanity, both Jew and Gentile. Because of sin, human nature has been separated from God by our own choice of the will. The first Adam led us all into a state, alienated from God, separate from God, an alienation that we have no power in ourselves to overcome, none at all, no human person, no matter how contrite, how good, how moral or upright can restore men and women to full relationship with God. It is beyond us. We are in a state, in our alienated state from God, beyond our control, beyond our ability and our powers to restore. We are unable to restore the fellowship in union with God because we are slaves to a fallen human nature. This is what Paul says. That is, 
We are held captive by what Paul calls in Galatians 4.3, the elementary principles of the world. These are the forces of Satan, sin, evil, and death, what Paul elsewhere calls the principalities and powers of darkness. They're at work in this world to oppose God and his kingdom. I think we have seen them expose themselves a bit this year, more clearly than maybe we have in the past. These elementary principles of the world hold fallen humanity captive by drawing us away from God into idolatry. They take our God-given hungers. Remember we talked about from Genesis, God made us hungry people to eat food, and we have other hungers, other desires, other passions. They take these passions and they distort them, these God-given hungers, which God intends for them to lead us ultimately back to him. They take them and misdirect them, tempting us with the lie that we can find satisfaction or freedom or salvation or worth or purpose or justification or love or happiness in a lesser good or in a created thing, just something other than the creator himself. For Jews, Paul argues, this manifested in a distorted understanding of the law. They turned the law into an idol in itself that led one away from Christ. The law, for the 1,300 years it was instituted in Israel, was all pointing and driving Israel toward the Messiah, toward the day when God would reveal him, when the appointed time had come. Yet somewhere along the way, they capitulated. They fell captive to the principalities and powers, and they distorted the law into an idol one that led them away from Christ and into captivity under the law, under sin, and under its curse. And for Gentiles, Paul argues that they took the elements of the world and made them into gods. They worshiped the creation rather than the creator. As Paul says in Romans 1, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And for us, the areas where we are held captive to the elementary principles of this world become evident when the pursuit of them displaces God from the center of our lives. You want to know what you're held captive to? What has the central focus of your life? What are you pursuing above all else? What are you anxious about above all else? There's a host of things that we can be held captive to in this world. It could be wealth, the pursuit of wealth. It could be societal status, either coming from wealth or from education. It could be medicine. There's nothing wrong with any of these things. It could be the pursuit of health and wellness can for us become an idol, something that we pursue above all else. I think we felt a little bit of that this year with the anxiety over the pandemic. It could be a person, someone we above all else desire approval from. from. Often this could be our parents. It may even be our spouse. It may be our children. We desire above all else for them to approve of us, to be happy with us. We may fall after and be held captive to liberty, the notion of freedom individual autonomous freedom which is not what God has given us 
or it may be identity. We've heard a lot about identity in the last few years. All these things are good things in themselves when rightly ordered. Yet when they become the central thing in our lives, they become idols. They become idols. Because none of these things, Paul says, none of these things can save or bless us with life and flourishing. Paul identifies the elementary principles of the world as weak and foolish. Just a few verses after where we stopped in verse 9. They are weak to save. They cannot save or restore or even fulfill you in any ultimate sense because they are not the one for whom you hunger. They point to him. They point to him. Your your hunger is for your creator. Don't fall prey to the lie that it is for wealth or for someone else's approval or for status or whatever it might be in this world. Your hunger, your desires are pointing you towards your creator. There's a provocative image that illustrates this point that is commonly but incorrectly attributed to G.K. Chesterton. And it goes like this. Every time a man knocks on a brothel door, he is really searching for God. It's a distorted love, a distorted desire. If properly ordered within the context of marriage, it points one to God. Yet when it becomes distorted, it's idolatrous and dangerous. What we hunger for in this fallen and broken world cannot and will not be satisfied by making a lesser good an ultimate good. It cannot and will not be satisfied by pursuing disordered loves or desires, no matter how genuine, authentic, or pleasurable they may feel. They are weak to save. They are also worthless. They lack the ability to bless you with true life and human flourishing because they are non-gods. Paul says in verse 8 that you are worshiping things that are by nature not God. They are not gods. And as a result, they do not have what God has. They don't have the value, the worth to give you and to bless you with life and vitality. God, the creator who is revealed to us in the flesh of Jesus, is the only one who can truly bless us with life and human flourishing. You see, we are incapable under our own power to liberate ourselves from the enslavement to the elementary principles of this world. We cannot free ourselves from sin or its curse. We cannot fulfill perfectly the requirements of God's law. Only through God is such liberation possible. Only through the incarnate God and Jesus Christ is such liberation possible. God is the only one who can redeem us from a life held captive to the futility of pursuing things and people and feelings that are not in themselves capable of satisfying us ultimately, that are incapable of satisfying our deepest hunger. Listen, this is so important. And this is so foundational to the Christian life. There is no true and lasting life or joy or peace or flourishing without God initiating a relationship with us, with human persons, a relationship that is traced back to the mysterious and miraculous event that we celebrate as Christmas. God with us in human flesh. 
That's good news. That is good news. You see, because in order to redeem us and to make us his sons and daughters, God sent his only son to take on our human nature in the flesh, born of woman, born under the law. God sent his son, Jesus, take on our human flesh in order to satisfy our hunger by liberating us from slavery to our anemic captors. And by adopting us in Christ as sons and daughters, heirs of his kingdom, not only just sons and daughters, not only just adopted sons and daughters, but full heirs with Christ of all that is God's. Through the incarnation of Jesus, God liberates us and adopts us as his children. And he will one day give us the new creation kingdom, his new creation kingdom as our inheritance. In that kingdom, we will experience life and vitality in full measure. Can't you? Oh, I just can't wait for it. No more, no more viruses. No more discord in our society and hate. But full life, love, unity in God and with man and in creation. What a beautiful reality that God has adopted us to receive. Yet as his sons and daughters, God does not make us wait for the kingdom to come in full before he gives us a foretaste a foretaste of that satisfying union with him. He gives us the spirit of his son as a foretaste of the life that will be ours when Jesus returns and establishes God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And as we wait for Jesus' Jesus's return, God sends into our hearts the spirit of his son, Paul says, who testifies of our union with God by reorienting and realigning our deepest longings desires and hungers toward God, our daddy. When we're little children, this isn't true for everyone, but when we're little children and we get hurt or something bothers us, what do we do? We run to our daddy. We run to our, our mom. Because we know they are the ones who can provide for us what we need in that moment. And this is what the Spirit does for us. He testifies in our heart that we are children of God by enabling us to cry out in prayer, Abba, Daddy, Father. God is your Father. You are no longer a slave, but a son, a daughter of the king. As Paul declares in Galatians 3, 26 and 27, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Through faith in the waters of baptism, you have been united with and in Jesus Christ and are made a child of God. You are a son of God. You are a daughter of God of God. He has adopted you into his heavenly family. The good news of great joy. And as a child of God, you have been made an heir of God, a joint heir with Christ. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. 
And if a son, then an heir through God. So what do we stand to inherit? Christians, what do we stand to inherit? In Christ, as God's children, we have a threefold inheritance. Listen to this, because this is such good news. If this doesn't get you excited, I hope you go home and you eat a big meal after this and enjoy rejoicing about the inheritance you have right now in Christ. We first inherit God himself. This is our great hope, that one day we will see and savor the glory of God in its fullness. Listen to Revelation 21.3. is a picture of that future time. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will be with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be to them as God. The great covenantal promise of God that you will be my people and I will be your God will be fulfilled in its ultimate and most realized sense in one future day. But we have a foretaste of it now in the spirit that testifies in our hearts. Abba, Father. What an inheritance. Second, we will inherit the world. In Christ, we are the offspring of Abraham and heirs of God's promise to give him and his offspring the world. Read Romans 4.13. Abraham has been promised the world. Creation. Don't fall prey to the unimaginative lie that Christians are unable to enjoy the full pleasures of this world. Oh, we can enjoy everything this world has to offer. No, we are united to Christ and in his death and resurrection, we are now made capable of true, God honoring, and lasting enjoyment of this creation. We can enjoy this world because we do not seek the world as an end in itself. Rather, we seek the world's creator. And in seeking the world's creator, we are given the world as a gift. As a gift for our enjoyment. Just as Jesus said in Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Of course, the world which we stand to inherit is this creation renewed when Christ returns in glory. However, this does not mean that the joys of God's kingdom are postponed until that day only. We are given foretaste of that kingdom joy in the simple pleasures of this world received in and to the glory of God. We are given foretaste of joy of that coming kingdom and renewed relationships with God, with one another, and with this creation. And that's good news. That's, an, that's, that's a wonderful inheritance that we have in Christ. And then finally, we inherit a redeemed and glorified body. Aren't you happy? <laughs> a redeemed and glorified body. In Romans 8, Paul teaches that we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly with the creation that's also groaning. We groan inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. The reason this is so crucial is that if we are to enjoy the world and all that is in it, and if all these good things are not to compete with God and become idols, then we must have bodies capable of deeper, higher, fuller joys than we presently have. We are marred by the sin in our bodies, by the fall. 
redeemed and glorified bodies will enable us to share in the glory of God in the sense that we are enough like him, conformed to the image of his son, to enjoy him and all his gifts the way he does. All this will be from him and through him and to him, and our joy will be full and his glory will be unmistakably central in our lives and in this creation. And so our inheritance as children of God includes at least this, if not more, the world, <laughs> the world and all that is in it, God himself as our final and ultimate portion and reward and new glorified bodies that can enjoy more fully and deeply God and his good gifts. We can enjoy these without any hint of idolatry. Because Jesus the word, the son of God, took on human flesh in Mary's womb and was born, because he lived a perfect human life, died on our behalf. And because God the Father raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in glory, we are adopted as sons and daughters of God. Children through faith in the waters of baptism that unite us together in and with Christ. Indeed, this Christmas, we celebrate the good news that brings great joy to all people. And we have calls to celebrate because God has redeemed us and made us his sons and daughters, and he has given us all things, satisfying hunger by restoring us to himself. And so this Christmas, testify, bear witness to the triumph of God through your feasting. Bear witness against the kingdom of darkness that would seek to lead us captive into idolizing the good gifts that we already have as our inheritance that would lead us captive away from God. Bear witness in your enjoyment of good food and good wine and good beer and good water <laughs> and good company of others. The joy of the good victory of Christ over Satan, sin, and death. May God help us to be a feasting people filled with the joy that is ours as his favored sons and daughters, heirs of his kingdom. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.